as a church, we're focusing on these three words that are on the side screens. Gather, grow, and go, because we believe they do a good job of capturing what our goal is in this year as a church. We want to be people who gather to see Jesus. Now, we actually believe that not just for some, but for all people, it's good to see him. Uh, We believe that because, secondly, we want to be a community that grows to follow him. Uh, When someone actually sees Jesus, what they see is compelling. It draws them forward and causes them to grow, to grow in a way that's actually good for the world. And that's the second thing that we want to be focusing on as a church. We want to be growing to follow him. And then thirdly, when any individual or group altogether grow to follow Jesus, we know that what happens is they go out into the world in a way that helps them show Jesus to others so that the whole thing can begin again. And that's what we want to be about as a church. For the first two weeks that we've spent on this theme, both of those weeks, that's last week and the one before, We observed scenes in the New Testament in which Jesus was approaching ordinary people and inviting them to come with him. He was gathering followers. First, we saw him do this with a group of fishermen. He invited them to come along, essentially inviting them to think and behave and feel differently because of their relationship with him. That was two weeks ago. Last week, we saw the same thing happen with a tax collector. And that was extraordinary because of the religious boundary markers that were around tax collectors. They weren't supposed to be among Jesus' followers. But Jesus, he went right across that boundary because to him, it didn't mean what it meant to others. He wanted to go across it because he wants even tax collectors to come with him. Here's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see that Jesus didn't only go across that boundary but in fact, other very deeply held and cherished boundary lines that the religious and social environment had drawn around people so that Jesus could have every kind of person following him. And here's why I want us to see this as a church. Some of us will decide that we shouldn't follow Jesus, seriously at least, because we're on the wrong side of some boundary marker. Others of us will think we're on the right side and people who are on the other side of that boundary, either socially or religiously constructed, they can't possibly be serious students of Jesus. And what needs to happen for all of us is we have to see the truth that Jesus has no regard for the boundary lines that we would like to erect because he wants every kind of person and every person to be with him, everyone. Now, just a word before we get into the story that we're going to look at. I want you to understand that I'm aware of the fact that I have ideas about every one of you without ever having interacted with many of you. And I want to acknowledge that. I believe about all of you that Jesus knows you and wants you to come along with him. I actually believe that. You know yourself. You know the things you hide. You know the things that you regret alongside the things you're proud of. You know the things that you're open about and the things that you cover. Jesus knows it all. You know even your doubts and maybe even some of you have hatred toward God. Jesus knows all of that. And yet still, he comes always to each of us to say, come with me. There's no one who's too young and there's no one who's too old. Uh, There's no one who's too far gone or uh, too assured of themselves to answer the invitation that Jesus has to all which is to come. And so this morning we'll see that. And we'll see especially in relationship to one social boundary around who's allowed to come so that, with God's help, we can remove any boundary that would keep us from following Jesus. The scene that we're going to look at is recorded in the Gospel of Luke in the 10th chapter. Uh, There, 
Jesus has been traveling along now with the other disciples that he's brought with him. He's not by himself. He's with the fisherman and the tax collector. And what Jesus is going to do is he's teaching them. And you know how a good teacher doesn't just teach with what he or she says, but rather with what is done. You know that sometimes there's an indirect message through what a person does. In this scene, we are going to learn, especially from what Jesus does, and the reason I mentioned that at the top is it is difficult to see the meaning of what he's doing because we're so far away socially and culturally. There's a need for well-tuned eyes to see what's really going on in this story, as there often is with a story that was written so many years ago. And so I'm going to read it, and then we'll see if we can see what Jesus is teaching through his actions, all right? The story begins in verse 38, and we're going to read straight through it to 42 in chapter 10 of Luke. Here's the scene. Now, as they went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And Martha has brought Jesus and the followers of his, the disciples, the serious students with him into Martha's home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks so she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, this scene with Jesus and the two sisters, Mary and Martha, is a scene which I bet many of you have heard before. If you've been in church for any time, you know this story, don't you? If you do, give me some sign that you know it. Help me here. Yeah, some of you know this, yeah. And the lesson on the surface at first read seems obvious. There are two options for disciples. You can be like Martha, busy doing good things for Jesus, or you can be like Mary, content to spend good time with Jesus. It can be one or the other, distracted and away from him or focused on him admiringly. Be like Mary and not like Martha. End of message. Let's pray. There's a lot more going on in this passage than that. I know when I first hear it, I think of the many people who struggle at every family event because they're always stuck in the kitchen while he's out there hanging out watching the game with his friends, right? If you're sitting next to your husband like this now, you want to shout amen, but that is not what's going on here. Of course, Jesus wants warm, affectionate devotion. He wants that. And of course, it's possible to be so busy trying to do good things for Jesus that you miss him altogether. And those things are true. But those are the things which we see with our 21st century eyes while missing the point that would not be lost on any first century reader. That is, that there is something going on in this moment which is much more profoundly divisive than just busyness versus contemplation. 
Mary is not just being an unhelpful sister in this story. She is flouting a well-established and widely accepted social norm. She has crossed a boundary line which no woman is supposed to cross in the first century. You need to know about the first century to understand this. In the social environment in which this occurred, virtually everyone agreed that the place for a woman was in the kitchen, while the learning, which was serious learning, with the rabbi and his followers, that was reserved for men only. The way that it worked in the religious communities in which many of these people would have grown up was very clear. Once people began to learn about the Torah, there was a dividing line at a certain age so that only men continued to study the Torah. The only ones who could become official students of rabbis were men, while the women learned enough of the Torah to take care of the domestic duties that would be their responsibility as women so that they could keep the household kosher, for instance. In that event, they would have had a female tutor who came into the home and taught them just enough to know. But when a rabbi came to a home and sat down and began to teach, it was the men who belonged in his presence while the women were expected to stay in the kitchen managing the hospitality. Now with that in your mind, and again, everybody believed this is how it would be. Imagine now that you are there while Martha is working in the kitchen and Jesus is talking in the other room with all of the men that he's gathered and he's teaching them. And he's a good rabbi. He's a teacher like nobody else has ever heard in their entire lives. He's unfolding his intellectual vision for the world and everybody who sits there is so moved by his way of thinking, they all want to leave behind the ways that they've always thought about things because his vision for the world is better than any other vision for the world. They love it. There he is not only talking about ideas, but he begins to unfold how we're supposed to live. And everybody there who has suffered for living in the wrong way, and haven't all of we suffered for living in the wrong way? is thinking this is the path of true life. Oh, if I'd only met this man sooner, now that I know him, I can go along with him. And while he's teaching like that, every student's heart is swelling in such a way that they are saying, even though it feels weird, I love my teacher. I love him. I love everything about this moment. And Martha's there watching, and from the kitchen, Martha knows it's supposed to be only the men there, but as she looks, she sees her sister Mary acting like a man because she has come to Jesus with her actions and she has said directly, I also want to be in your school of rabbinical students. Sign me up. And that is so awkward and odd for Martha that she gets Jesus and says, hey, aren't you gonna put an end to this? Something wrong is going on here. My sister is acting like she actually is going to be a rabbinical student like the rest of these guys. And do you know what? There's one person in the scene besides Mary who has no problem at all with what's going on. And it's Jesus. And listen, you might think, hold on a minute. How do you know she's really acting like a rabbi in this moment? Because when I read it, right? You look at it again. When I read it, and this is true for me when I first read this, you know, she sat at his feet it sounds like she's got like a crush on him, maybe. She's there with stars in her eyes and she's just admiring. She's, you know, batting her eyelashes. Do you remember in, um, in the Indiana Jones movie when, when Harrison Ford is teaching and that girl's in the front and she blinks her eyes like this, right? Love you. Like, it kind of looks like that. To us, it kind of looks like that. But that 
statement right there, sat at the Lord's feet. That is an instant giveaway for the first century reader that this woman is presuming to become a rabbinical student. Uh, You may have remembered if you were here in the beginning of this time thinking about gather, grow, and go, that when Jesus said, follow me, in Greek, akalutheo, do you remember this? That's what Rabbi said to make a formal invitation to students. To sit at the feet of a teacher is a formal way of saying this person has become a legitimate and legitimized student of the rabbi. Uh, That phrase means in the first century that here is someone who's been formally enlisted, someone who has the intention of learning in such a way as to become an official disciple of the rabbi. This person right here sitting at the feet is someone with the long-term goal of one day being developed in such a way that she also can go ahead and teach others. And the reason we know that's what this phrase means is partly because that's how it's used culturally in extra-biblical material. But more importantly, if you look at the way that phrase is used in other places by the author of Luke, we see that it's used to describe the formal relationship between teacher and student as rabbi and prospective rabbi. Does somebody know that that the author of the Gospel of Luke wrote another book in the New Testament? Does anybody here know that? If you know what that book is, would you say it out loud? Okay, good. A lot of you know. Listen, now don't feel so proud. Okay? If you don't know that, the people who do know that should not express pride, but rather a sense of responsibility. Because we are going to be a church that grows together. And so nobody's going to be more proud than other people because they know more. They're going to take that as a sign that they have something to pass along. And it's true. Acts was also written by Luke. And the reason that matters is in the story that is told in Acts, we learn about the conversion of a former rabbi who was called Saul, who then was named Paul. And Paul, we see his, in many places in Acts, we see him talking about his own experience and his own life. There's one moment in the end of the book where he has to defend his background before a large crowd that's questioning his credentials. And in Acts 22, verse 3, Paul describes himself with these words. Look, I am a Jew, he says, brought up in this city in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel, educated strictly according to our ancestral law, being zealous for God. This is Paul's way of saying, I am someone who's always been zealous for God. I wanted to know him and follow him. And according to the law of our own people, I have done what was required to be officially signed up to get on the path where I not only learn about God, but teach others about God. I followed our ancestral law. And that means that when I was a young man, I found my own rabbi to officially attach myself to. His name's Gamaliel. You can read about him in other places in the New Testament, and you can read about this rabbi outside of the New Testament. And the way that Paul describes his relationship to the rabbi officially is he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. And that means that what we are seeing in the story that is told in Luke is that Mary, just like Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel, is treating Jesus as the rabbi and Jesus is not telling her, go back into the kitchen because you're on the wrong side of the line, which is what Martha wanted him to say. Instead, Jesus says, and this is what Jesus says, look at it again. Mary has chosen the better part which will not be taken from her. And this reveals that Jesus has no regard for the social boundaries that we want to put around who's allowed to be a serious student of his. Not then and not today either. I want you to try this. 
Can you try to imagine the boundary lines that you personally carry about who is a legitimate, serious, authorized student of Jesus as opposed to those who don't have any business taking on that role? I know that you have them. You might not be aware of it. Usually we're not aware of these things because we've grown up with them in our minds. And there are plenty that you personally have grown up with and that we have grown up with altogether. And the question for us is if we're going to be a church that is gathered not by our best intentions or our feelings, but rather by Jesus, so that we grow to follow Jesus, not what we think or our own ideologies, the question is, are we gonna let Jesus' way of building his community shape us or our own uncritically adopted social conventions around who's in and who is out? And I, I opt for following Jesus here, okay? So here's my question to you. Can, can we conceive of what the boundary markers we tend to have around who is and who is not really legitimately invited to be Jesus' official student? Okay, so let's, let's consider some. Maybe for some of us, it is the male-female divide. Maybe some of us would think, well, men are the ones who are responsible for serious discipleship, not women. And so that's the line that we tend to operate according to. Maybe there are some women who would never have thought, I also could be invited to have a significant role in not only receiving, but then passing on the truth that this rabbi gives. Here, this story says, you are invited to leave the kitchen and come into the study. It says that. And maybe that's not the boundary line that's in your mind. Maybe for you, you've always had this idea that it's only people who are perfect who are really invited to be in Jesus' community as true disciples. Have you ever thought that? Does it sound like the kind of thing that, no, just that's a thing preachers say. Nobody really thinks that. Does it feel like that a little bit? Yeah, I see it does. So just one of you. So just you and me. I've had two conversations in the last month in which I've invited people into leadership in this church and their response immediately was, well, I'm not perfect. And I wanted to say, of course you're not, you fool. <laughs> I didn't say that. But it reminded me that that also is a boundary marker that a lot of us have drawn around who we think is legitimately invited to be a serious student of Jesus, only the people who are perfect. And that keeps us from moving forward and it shouldn't. You might think, well, if you knew my imperfection, you might not say that. You know, Jesus knows your imperfection. And what he says is, yeah, I get it. Leave it behind and come here. I want you as my student as well. Uh, there, there's another one. It seems different, right? It's similar. Maybe you think, well, you know, the people who are really invited to follow Jesus are only those people who have those terrible moral backgrounds, those awful stories where they were down and out, hit the skids, and then miraculously God came and redeemed them and made everything right again, and they have this sensational conversion story. Only those are the ones who are invited to be with Jesus. And since my life has been, you know, relatively boring, I guess I'm not someone who has that kind of invitation. No, you too. Those of you who have always been doing pretty well are also expected, not by me, and not by our church, first of all, who cares? <laughs> I'm serious. You shouldn't care so much what I think, but what Jesus thinks. Here's another dividing line. This is why I say you shouldn't care so much. Some people think the only one who's really supposed to be a student of Jesus is the guy who's on this side of the podium and everyone else on the other side, they're supposed to receive the benefits of his exclusive rights to be, being a true disciple of Jesus. Listen, there's a part of my ego that wants to go on believing that, right? <laughs> And there's a part of me that maybe wants to protect my job in case any of you become a better, right, preacher, leader than me. But all of that, no, that's another one of those lines that needs to be pushed aside. It's a very unhealthy community that 
goes on behaving as if it's only the preacher or the few official leaders who are supposed to think about Jesus substantively. No, every one of you is invited with the gift and the mind that God has given you, with the doubts for good reason that you bring to the table, for the failures that are behind you that are ugly and shameful, for the ones that you still hide right now, for your success, for your gifts in things that don't feel like they have anything to do with the church, for everything that's behind you in your unique story and everything that characterizes you right now in the present, the kind of rabbi we meet in Jesus is the kind that says, set aside every reason not to come to me, and I, I want you in my class with me and everyone else who I've invited. That's what Jesus says. And please understand this. He wants you there for your own good. The things that you'll learn when you get close to him, they will not be confirmed by the maniac vision that you have of what Christians believe because you've watched too much of that news station. You're gonna see instead a man whose love is so overwhelming that it would transform the world as more and more men and women become his students and let it change them. You'll see a man whose thinking is exactly what we need to rescue us from the madness that makes us afraid every morning when we wake up. You would see a man who knows you and everything behind you more than you know yourself and embraces you and says, yeah, I want you two to come along and be my student, you, Every man, every woman, every youngster, every old person, all of you are invited. The people who are confident, the people who are not, you also come here with me. And if you'll come, like Mary, you'll sit at his feet, even though it might bother a Martha, and what you're gonna do there is what disciples are called to do if they will let themselves be gathered by Jesus and grow to follow him. And it's also there in the, in the very brief description that I read uh, just a few moments ago. What a disciple does is what Mary does there. She listened to what he was saying. And that, in a nutshell, is is what it takes to grow as a follower of Jesus. It's not to listen to what the religious community has said about him or, or the most persuasive speaker says about him. It's to listen to him. And if you do that, if you come and you listen to him, what you hear him saying is just what you need to hear. You hear him telling you things that confirm the deepest longings of your heart about the goodness of the world that you find yourself yourself in. You hear him giving you new guidance about what your life is supposed to be about, the words that you've longed to hear that there's purpose for you personally. You hear him telling you, don't lose hope. I've got something good ahead of you. You hear him waiting patiently as you pour out your heart for your disappointments, and he has room and time for it. You hear him, in effect, giving you all the space you need and then adding to it his own word, which you must listen to, so that you you do one thing, and that is grow. And that's what Jesus wants. He wants us to grow. So what if, what if every one of us here chooses to be aware of the social boundary that we've used to respect, but now we let Jesus take away, so we go close to him and become his students, and we listen to his word? What will happen if we do that? How will we grow? The answer is that we will grow in a word in a healthy way, that we will see healthy growth. And that's what I want to talk about with our remaining time. What it looks like to be individuals and people who are coming to Jesus despite the boundaries that might have held us back so that we grow in a healthy way. What will happen if we do that? Uh, What will happen is what was happening for Mary. Let's come back there for a moment. And it's what happens for any rabbinical student who decides to follow a trustworthy rabbi. First, her mind is going to be stretched. She's going to grow intellectually. And any Christian community that's afraid of thinking 
is not worthy of the name Christian. It's not Jesus' community. It's not a community of Christ if it's unwilling to engage its mind. And so that's what's gonna happen. Growth that's healthy is gonna involve the intellect. And there, as Mary listens to Jesus, Jesus doesn't, doesn't just give good ideas. Have you ever been in a community where it's all about what you think? Hmm. You're thinking. <laughs> Jesus also teaches in a way that gets feet moving, that gets people doing things differently in the world so that they don't just say they believe something, but they live differently. And now Jesus is unfolding that for Mary too because if you're gonna be a student of this rabbi, it's gonna challenge you morally. It's gonna challenge you to live differently than you've lived before, not just think differently. And then as he's unfolding his vision for what the truth is and how life should be lived, her heart is going out to him as are the hearts of everyone else in that classroom because his presence is magnificent. It's love embodied in a person there. This teacher is the one who causes a person to grow in a healthy way because it engages the person's mind, it engages the person's actions, and it also engages their feelings. And so if we will grow in a healthy way as a church altogether or as individuals, we will be growing in a comprehensive way that involves, first of all, the head. Healthy growth will involve your head. Uh, the person who's coming to Jesus and becoming his student is the person who chooses to go on the same road as Jesus intellectually. And what that means is you will be with him in such a way that your ideas will be challenged by his ideas. Sometimes there'll be overlap. Sometimes there will be divergence between what you've always thought and what Jesus says. And the student of Jesus is the one who engages her head, his head, to say, I'm going to let his ideas change my old ideas. Maybe you've always thought about God in this way. Uh, maybe because of the TV program that you're most invested in has a vision of what divinity looks like or the news program that's most compelling to you shows stories that have taught you to think about God in this way. Here Jesus comes and says, no, here's what God looks like and you are going to be challenged to let his idea change your head. Now, maybe it's Jesus' way of seeing what is worthy of ultimate concern, which will replace yours. Maybe it's Jesus' thoughts about the purpose of your life, about what has ultimate value, about obedience and grace and forgiveness, about redemption, about power and humanity, about status and possessions, about enemies. All of your ideas about these will be put up beside Rabbi Jesus. And the question will be, are you going to let him shape your head to think like he thinks? Healthy growth will mean that your mind is engaged. If not, and I'll tell you right now, there are plenty of communities that are religious communities that they do not put a premium on the development of your intellect. In fact, they avoid it. And if not, then you will be gullible. And you will be gullible to exploitation by a persuasive teacher. Do you know that sometimes religious teachers, they do it for their own private gain and what keeps them going is closing the minds of the people who follow them? Do you know that? It wasn't, it doesn't just happen now. Jesus told his disciples, there are gonna be plenty of people who come after me speaking in my name and they're gonna be false. Be on your lookout. Uh, he, uh, Paul wrote about this in the letters he wrote. Peter wrote about it. John wrote about it. False teaching is a prominent theme even in the New Testament because even back then there were hucksters who knew how to abuse gullible people who were not thinking by telling them what they wanted to hear instead of what they needed to hear. And do you know this is an axiom the man who tells you what, to, what you want to hear is the man who's helping himself. The man who tells you what you need to hear is the one who's helping you. 
And the only way you can tell the difference is when the growth that you're experiencing with Jesus is healthy growth in your mind. And so that's why we're going to engage the head. That's the first kind of growth. Now, it has to be balanced because if all you're doing is growing in your mind, you become a danger. Do you know the person who has so many ideas about God in their head, but their life doesn't reflect any of those ideas? Instead, they become someone who's mean, divisive, judgmental, because they think they know better than anyone. I see a lot of you nodding. Yes? Have you, did you watch the early seasons of The Simpsons, like the first eight seasons? Do you remember Ned Flanders, right? Homer's neighbor? Ned's wife went off to Bible camp, and in her own words, I'm going off to Bible camp so I can become more judgmental. <laughs> okay, that's what happens when the person is just growing in their head, but it's not balanced growth. And the second area of growth, it needs to be your hands. If it's just what you think, but not what you do, then it's not the growth that Rabbi Jesus wants. The teacher Jesus wants you to be growing not just in what you hear and say you believe, but in what you do with what you hear. The way Jesus put it was magnificent. He said, some people will hear these words of mine, but they won't do them. And that's like a person who builds a house on the sand. A storm comes and that house will fall down. Some of you know that well, don't you? On the other hand, Jesus says, the person who hears what I say and does what I say, that's someone who's growing with their head and also their hands, that's a wise person. It's like someone who builds a house on rock. And when the storm comes, that house is going to be fine. Uh, there's another, uh, this, is, this is thematic throughout the New Testament. There's another uh, line. See if you know this. Do not, uh, excuse me, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Do some of you know that? Who said that? James. The person who just knew that it was James, I'm going to want to sign you up to help other people learn about Jesus. Serious. If you know more, if you've learned the Bible, your part in our church being what we're supposed to be is going to be saying, uh, maybe I'll help some other people learn. Not because you've got it perfect. Nobody does. Right? There are plenty of us have the wrong ideas, but some good ideas. We're going to work together, right? But James said that, and James was Jesus' brother. And James spent enough time with his brother to know that his brother didn't want a bunch of people whose heads were filled with knowledge but didn't do anything. He knew that what Jesus wants is what you learn to turn into what you do in the world. And so we're going to grow in a healthy way when our heads are growing, but that growth is accompanied by our hands doing good things in the world. Thank God for Ren Cares. A lot of you are involved in Ren Cares. That's one of the ways our church is going to be using our hands to follow Jesus. We're going to go to Guatemala right after Easter. We're going to get our hands dirty and do good work. Why? Not because we're especially good people, but because Jesus, our teacher, has told us, love others and let your love be genuine. Do not love in word only, but in deed and in action. That's what Jesus' follower John said. So let's do it. And not only Ren Cares, but many other places we're going to have the opportunity to grow with our hands following Jesus. Now, these two, head and hands, are good, but you're already thinking, what's the third one going to be? And is it also going to start with an H? <laughs> right? It should. Right? This is the kind of church where it's not gather, develop, and travel. It's gather, grow, go. So it's got to be heart. Oh, I just said it. Heart. I let it out. Darn it. I was belly timed. You got to be growing. Go ahead. In your heart too. Because, listen, the person who knows enough to go and start doing things is always going to be walking on the knife edge of bitterness and resentment because they're always going to see lots of people who should be helping them but aren't. And they're always going to see a lot of other Christians who aren't at work as hard as they're at work, and it's going to be frustrating. 
And they're gonna work really hard and do a lot of things and give up a lot for God and still their life is gonna have all kinds of unexpected and undesirable messes in it, right? And so it'd be easy to say, what well, if I'm doing all this, why aren't others doing or why isn't God making it easier? And, and that's, that's the fatal mistake of, of failing to have this third part of your relationship with Rabbi Jesus developed, which is your heart. And this is so beautiful about Jesus. He actually wants you to love him before he even wants you to know anything about him or do anything for him. That's what he's like. Before you even have the right beliefs about him or do one single thing that would make anybody think you were a good person, Jesus is waiting first for you to give him your heart because he has already decided to give you his heart. And his heart is the heart of God himself, which beats and bled for you. Not someone other than God, but in Christ, God's heart bled because of love. That's the, the word that the New Testament gives for it. It's love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us and gave himself in his son for us so that we might be rescued, so that we may be cleansed from everything that would legitimately keep us from being a true student of Jesus, the legitimate things, so that we would press on through all of the barriers that religious people or society wants to put up for who can really be amongst his company so that we can know him. And so that knowing him, we would love him. Uh, the way the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 13 is unmatched in its brilliance. Uh, maybe you've been to a wedding where you've heard, love is patient, love is kind. Have you heard that? Before that beautiful exposition of love, Paul tells the people in Corinth, maybe you've always thought that the most important thing was knowledge. And he says this, I can know everything, even the things that only angels would dare to dream to know. I can understand all mysteries and I can even know the future. But if I don't have love, my knowledge counts for nothing. He says that. He also says, I can also do good things for other people that would be astounding. In my benevolence, I could give everything away that I have to help people who have less. I could even give my whole body over to other people. I could have so much faith that I could move a mountain. All of those things I could do with my hands, but if I don't have love, it is meaningless and accounts for nothing at all. Because the most excellent way is love. And for us, that means if we will accept the invitation out of the kitchen into the study with Jesus, which we all should accept, wherever we are, and if we will apply our minds to growing to follow him, which we all should, and if we're going to also decide, I'm not gonna behave like I always did back there. I'm gonna go on the way that Jesus invites me to go on so that we're following him with our hands too, which we all should. Then we are ready first and foremost to hear again the first thing, which is love. Love God. Love Jesus. Let him love you. And letting him love you, then let him tell you as your teacher who you are and what he has for you. And what he has for you is what he has for this church, which is to become an individual, for us as a church to become a church that is very simply learning how to think properly about faith, engaging our heads, learning how to turn into action our thoughts and good deeds with our hands so that it corresponds to what we're learning and then both undertaken with the warmth of affection that comes from a deepening love for God and a reckless and amazing affection for Jesus. That's the path we're invited onto. Now, this is the question, how would we love him? I'm not gonna answer that until next week. And yeah, this is a shameless plug for returning next week. <laughs> 
I really want you to come here next week. And if you can't, you can tune in online and see it. A picture of what it looks like when one man who had good reasons not to follow Jesus because of everything he would lose chose to follow him anyway and just because of the love that he saw in Jesus and the love it inspired in him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this time to be together with all of these potential students of yours in this room. What I pray for is simply that for having gathered this morning, all of us will have seen a clearer picture of Jesus. And that's what we want every time we gather, to see Jesus clearly. And then secondly, I pray that for having seen him, that every one of us would grow a bit more than we had previously to follow him. I I know that you have before every one of us, wherever we are on the path, a next step. And so I pray that all of us will take that step for having been here. And then I pray very simply that our growth would cause us to show you uh, you and, and to show Jesus to the people around us for the sake of this world, which so desperately needs to see him. We pray in Jesus' name altogether. Amen.